0: Good morning. My name is Tanya Aviles, and I'll be reading the scripture today from Romans chapter 7. Uh, So take a minute to find that in your Bibles or your Bible apps, or you can also follow along on the screen. We'll be reading Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25 in the New International Version. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin living in me. For I know that that good itself does not dwell in me that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning once again. For those of you that were not here earlier this morning, my name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. We are going to continue our series called Embodying the Gospel today. And we've really been talking about how to be a healthy church community And a community is the uh, gathering of individuals. We've talked about living, about giving, about discipleship, about gossip. We talked last about being a non-anxious presence, that Jesus was one. And today we're going to talk about this topic of sabotage and touch on this idea of sabotage. Has anybody here ever heard of a sermon on sabotage before? I've never preached one either, so this is um, a first time. And, you know, uh, this is sort of an interesting um, topic for me. And I adjusted a little bit during this week as I was preparing the talk because, you know, our church is going through a lot of change and there's a, there are a lot of people here who have been here for a while And it just didn't feel right for the new guy to just show up and start demanding change and quote-unquote leading change and then uh, assume that everybody ought to follow without resistance, without asking questions. Surely I would do that if I was on the receiving end of somebody leading change. And it felt a little bit like uh, a cheap shot. And so I kind of wrestled with this text and this idea of sabotage and change. And I think I came to a really, I think more, uh, a a conclusion, a, a, a tone that I think is more reflective of God's perspective and God's heart on the matter, rather than just a perspective from the person leading the change, or the person that's on the receiving end of the leadership of that change. Does that make sense? So, Uh, I'm going to try to hit that tone, and uh, this is what Paul does so well in the the book of Romans, is um, there is no one person that's really sinning, and one person that's doing better, but all are condemned together under the law, so that all might be redeemed together by Jesus. And so, I hope that's our experience today. All right, so three points. First, we are... A slave to the law. Therefore, we are prone to sabotage, but we are saved by Jesus. Slave to law, prone to sabotage, but saved by Jesus. Uh, On April 28th, we're going to start a new series on the book of Romans. And it's going to take about two years to get through the book, by my uh, estimation. And so it's, it's going to feel uh, like an epic adventure. And I've been studying the book of Romans just as a book. And uh, two titles for this series come to mind. And I'm asking for your vote or a third suggestion on this. I have two titles for this series so far. Uh, first is, Of God. Romans of God, or Romans, Masterpiece. Uh, Three out of four uh, commentators that I read call this book Paul's Masterpiece. This is the greatest piece of writing that Paul has ever uh, accomplished, and so they consider it to be a masterpiece. And so I'm not sure which to call it. If you have a third suggestion, I'd love to hear about it. April 28th, mark your calendars. We're going to be in it for a while. Today, we get a little taste of what the book of Romans is like. And um, man, is this a tongue twister or what? Right? It's almost like a who's on first skit here. Uh, But let's go. First, slave to law. And I'm going to read it again because I want us to get a really good overview of this passage again. Start with chapter 7, verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. But in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. This is almost as complex as like a Peter sermon, right? As many words and information coming at you, but uh, we'll thin this out. First, one of the things I want you to understand here is uh, Paul is not condemning the law. A couple of times he mentions that the law is good. He begins by saying that the law is spiritual. Now, this word spiritual here, it's not referring to um, other time. There's there's several words for this, but this is the word pneuma, right? Meaning wind or of the spirit. So the law is of the spirit. right? It's life-giving. The law is spiritual. Therefore, it is good. There's a law here, another law at work. And Paul says, I want to do the good. There is a part of you that wants to do good. Yes? You want to do good, right? Can you watch a show that is displaying some altruistic motive or uh, action on the part of humanity and not be touched by that? Have you seen an uh, episode of Extreme Home Makeover without tearing through some portion of that? It's really hard, right? I want to do good. But, simultaneously, evil is present. There is such a thing as evil. Have you experienced evil without and within? Have you seen it? And have you seen it sort of coexist pretty peacefully with each other? It's, they're not mutually exclusive. It's not like all evil or all good. But here is good. But here also... Is evil. Here is evil, but here also is good. And Paul says, this is called the law of sin. There's a lot of laws here. This one is called the law of sin, and it basically is a description of the war that wages and rages between what he calls the mind, right? And what he calls the body, the soma. That's the word he uses here. So here we have our mind and we have our body. We have good. We have evil. And they're, they're always at war. So all these words and do's and don'ts, all these words just describe this basic dynamic that exists. And we don't have to be uh, perplexed by this because this is common to us. We experience this just being alive. We experience good. We experience evil. It's outside of us. It's inside of us. It's in our families, in our relationships, in our workplaces, in our church. It's everywhere. There's sort of the pervasive nature of good and evil at war with each other. But there there is sort of a conclusion to this war, if you will. The war is always... Uh, raging. It's always happening. But Paul says there's always a loser. Somebody is going to lose. And that somebody, Paul says, is me. He says, it's you. There's a war that's waging. Raging. Is it raging or waging? I just feel like I can't speak English right now. Wait. Raging. There's a war that's War that's raging. It's within you. And you're going to lose. And so he says, therefore, you are a prisoner or a slave. Right? So that's pretty sad news. And then he says, therefore, we need rescue. Who will save us from this body that is subject to death? And this is sort of an interesting word I want to point out. This word, deliver, in verse 25, where it says, Thanks be to God who delivers me. This is not just being saved, but it's this idea, If you, the literal definition of this word here that's translated deliver is the word that means that you are drawn to oneself, drawn to a person. So imagine that you are, you know, there's a flood and you are in a river that's uh, overflowing and everything is being swept away and you're hanging on by a tree limb. You can't just be rescued out of that river. You can't just be pulled out and then let go. You're going to go right back in. It's this idea that somebody has to come in and draw you to themselves and hold you to their side. You need this constant connection to this other person, this other entity. You can't just not be in the river. You have to be not in the river and in somebody else's arms. That's this idea that you're being Rescue, drawn to somebody, right? So therefore, verse 25 says, either you are a slave to God, you're connected to God, drawn to Him, or you are a slave to the law of sin. It's one or the other. Interesting side point here is that the self is not able to, to remain unconnected. You cannot exist apart from connection to either God, in this case, or the law of sin, which is going to enslave you and imprison you. The only question that actually remains is, who are you going to be a slave to? Who are you going to be? connected to. And this is actually Paul's point. This, I think, is the interesting thing about this passage. He's not saying that you are a slave to sin per se. He's saying you are a slave to the law of sin. There is a law at work, and you're going to be a slave to this law. I'll give you a few examples here. Life is like rock climbing, you can't just hang there. You have to put your foot on something. Or you can just hang there if somebody is belaying you. You can hang on the rope, but that's somebody else putting their weight up against yours and allowing you to hang there. And the question is, what, who's going to hold you up? Is it going to be the, the cliff or is it going to be the rope? But you can't just hang there because there's a law at work. That law is called gravity. It's always pulling you down. Somebody's got to have a hold of you. Another example is the example I gave. You're out in the open ocean. You're in the water. What are you going to do? Who's going to save you? You can't stay floating in open water forever. You need something or somebody else to buoy you up. Another example. You're like a baby. You can't just survive on your own. Who is going to take care of you? Who's going to be mom and dad to you? Is it going to be the law of sin or is it going to be God? Right? To, to speak some uh, technophiles language here, your laptop or your phone can't run forever. You need power. What are you going to plug into? Right? Or worse, even worse than not having power. Having power, but not having internet access. (laughs) What are you going to connect to? Right? I think the human word for this phenomenon is the word identity. Paul is describing a law at work. And the law says this. Our problem is that we take God's good law, which is good. It's spiritual. And we suck it into an inappropriate and illegitimate place in our lives. We obey the law or we break the law, but either way, we are using the law to be something or someone of value or worth or significance to have legitimacy instead of God. That's the problem with the law of sin. There's a phrase here where Paul says, I know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. That word unspiritual is the word sark. Anybody know what that Greek word sark means? It means flesh. Doesn't it kind of sound like flesh? Sark. Sark. Right? It's not the word soma, which he uses throughout the rest of the passage to talk about the body. But it's the opposite of wind, opposite of spiritual. And he's saying this flesh places the law in place of God. Another way to say it in a way that I've said it before is you're damned if you obey the law or you're damned if you don't obey the law. That if you don't obey the law, you experience the consequences of breaking the law. Because the law is good. It's spiritual. And it's at work. It's like gravity. Right? It's good. If you break it, there's the consequences. But if you keep the law, then somehow that keeping of the law becomes a law unto itself. And it begins to take the place of God. Our basic problem, human problem, the human condition, the plight, is that we don't know how to have a healthy relationship with God's good law. The law is spiritual. It describes reality. And yet we don't know how to be in a legitimate relationship with this law that is good. If we obey the law, it becomes another law, and we begin to depend on the keeping of that law. The obedience to that law begins to take the place of God in our lives. Or if we break the law, then it begins to break us. And we experience the consequences of that. And this is what Paul describes as a body that is subject to death in verse 24. Whether you keep the law, whether you break the law, you're always subject to death. Our mind, our bodies can't handle the law. This is why we have to preach Christ at this church. This is what it means to be a Christian church. Because the basic human problem is that we can't save ourselves. Our problem isn't that we can't keep the law. It's not that we are weak and we're incompetent, we're unable to keep the law, though that is true. The problem even before that problem is even if God gave us just one law, and if we kept that one law, the keeping of that law would destroy us as much as the breaking of that one law. We have this vacuous nature And we're going to suck whatever obedience or disobedience we have into the center of ourselves and make it a part of our identity. I was thinking about a good example to describe this dynamic. And, uh, you know, last week Susie was gone. I'm still kind of working this out. Um, But I worked harder than I normally would that week. And it was intense on multiple levels. And... Um, when she came home and I saw with fresh eyes the way she was running the house and her acceptable level of, you know, organization and cleanliness and all of that, uh, I could not help but compare it to my way of doing things. Is there a way to experience for me? Just answer this question in your mind. Is there a way for me to experience her re-entry into the house situation without comparing it to my own standards that I was living by? That's the only comparison set I have, right? That's what's real to me. That's the backdrop, whether I like it or not, whether I choose that or not. And I realized that my ways of doing things became the standard, the law by which now Susie was being judged. Can I help that? I can't help it. Can you help that? You can't help it. Another example. You're in a relationship. And then you're out of that relationship. And then you're in another relationship. What do you bring into that second relationship? The backdrop of the other relationship. And if it's not thoroughly processed enough, that's called baggage. (laughs) Right? And if it's not thoroughly processed, but you commit together for life, that's called marriage. (laughs) It's impossible to be without baggage, is my point. Who doesn't have baggage? Whatever life you're living, whatever standards you're living by, either privately or publicly, whether you're a hypocrite or whether you're not, Whatever that is, that becomes a law unto itself and becomes the standard of measure and judgment by which you look at the world and judge everyone else. What that means is, if you don't clean the house, you're damned. If you clean the house, you're damned. There's no way not to have that law be sucked into your heart. We are, therefore, Paul concludes, a slave to law. How can you live without this reality? I don't think it's possible. Second, we are prone, therefore, to sabotage. Okay, I'm going to read portions of verse 15, 18, 19, 21, and 25. Verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Okay, Paul is just saying there, I don't know what I'm doing. Okay, verse 18. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Okay, again, he's a self-contradicting person. Verse 19. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. He's a very conflicted man. Verse 21. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Verse 25. But in my sinful nature, I am a slave to the law of sin. What do you call this? This, my friends, is called sabotage. Sabotage. This word sabotage Derives from the Netherlands in the 15th century when workers would throw their sabots, wooden shoes, into the wooden gears of the textile looms to break the cogs, fearing the automated machines would render the human workers obsolete. Isn't that interesting? Sabotage is a deliberate action aimed at weakening another entity through subversion, obstruction, disruption, or destruction. In a workplace setting, sabotage is the conscious withdrawal of efficiency generally directed at causing some change in workplace conditions. One who engages in sabotage is a saboteur. As a rule, saboteurs try to conceal their identities because of the consequences of their actions. Sabotage, done well, is inherently difficult to detect and difficult to trace to its origin. Very interesting indeed. We are our own worst saboteurs. This is what Paul is saying. We're constantly counterproductive. I want to do good, but I'm going to make sure I don't do it. And I'm going to make sure I'm not totally conscious of it. I love you, but I'm going to make your life a living hell. But I'm going to do it in the name of love. (laughs) Because this is my nature. I am a slave to the law of sin. It's not just that I sin. But everything I touch becomes sinful. That's the law. I can't handle the law. But all I have, all I know is the law. I'm going to sabotage myself from keeping the law. And if I keep the law, I'm going to sabotage myself from benefiting from the keeping of that law. Isn't that wordy just like a Pauline epistle? This is us. We are saboteurs. God and his law and our flesh, it just cannot coexist always at war with each other right and we genuinely sincerely think and believe that we want god but we really want is the law we're addicted to the law we're enslaved to the law we love the law it's what we know agony pain Suffering, manipulation, deceit. This is our nature. This is what we're addicted to. And we love it. This is what Paul is saying. We're saboteurs. We get pleasure. We derive pleasure from making things break. You realize how unable we are to help ourselves? On one level... We love our children, don't we? We love our kids. We want what's best for them. But on the other hand, we sabotage them all the time. I have three stories I want to tell. First, uh, uh, one is a realtor uh, and their client. Uh, If you are in real estate, you know this, at least on an anecdotal level, that when you're showing a house to a potential uh, buyer, You don't want that potential buyer to bring by their parents or siblings to look at the house or even friends. Because generally, they tend to break the deal. This is true. And uh, if you are setting a New Year's resolution for losing weight, it's also true that uh, you shouldn't tell anybody that you're doing it. And there's two reasons psychologists say we shouldn't do that. One, your friends and those in your emotional system will sabotage you. Because if you change, they have to change. They don't want to change, so they need you not to change. And this is all on a subconscious level. Remember, sabotage done well, we do it well, is inherently difficult to detect and difficult to trace to its origin. right? And the second reason we sabotage our resolutions is because uh, we experience a false sense of accomplishment if we tell other people. We think it's already done, that we're already doing it when we haven't. Man, are we complex. Okay. Uh, There's a friend of mine. His name is Jack. And uh, um, he comes from a pretty broken family. And um, uh, when he was in sixth, seventh grade, so he started smoking. And uh, he started smoking a lot. And, um, you know, his mom... uh, Always wanted him to stop doing this. At first it was a secret, but then, you know, he couldn't keep it a secret for long. And she was always on Jack's case for him to stop smoking, right? Right? Um, And she would do things like give him pamphlets and send him tapes of, you know, seminar speakers and buy him books to uh, read and all these tactics to try to get him to stop smoking. She tried threatening him. She tried withdrawing love. She tried withdrawing, um, you know, support like money and, you know, clothing and just all sorts of ways to try to get him to stop smoking. But if you talk to Jack, do you know why Jack smokes? Because uh, he was really upset about the fact that his parents got a divorce. And what happened was, because Jack is a pretty competent guy, the mom began to lean on him emotionally. And she began to parentify him. You know what parentify means? Parentify means when there's a role reversal, and you begin to uh, have the child become a friend, and then the friend becomes sort of a partner. And uh, it's a really... uh, uh, complex thing, but it's, it's confusing for the child because the intimacy and the friendship feels so affirming and so good, so they want to be a friend, and it feels right, but it also feels wrong because you're losing a parent when that happens, right? Everybody needs a mom. Everybody needs a dad, and so uh, that started happening, and so he started feeling all this responsibility and pressure from an undue age, and so he needed me time. He calls it jack time. Right? And so smoking became that. And every time he needed a little me time because he was feeling the pressure from, uh, from his mom to be this pseudo husband, he would have to go have a smoke. And then it became a habit and, and so on and so forth. But she didn't understand this connection. Right? And so she would come over to his house when he's an adult now, she would come over to his house when she needed something. And then while she was there, she would give him a book or hand him a tape or, you know, uh, put things up on his wall that would remind him to stop smoking. If she found some cigarettes, she would destroy it. But while she was there on that visit, very visit, she would also be putting a lot of emotional pressure on him to help and give. And she would lean on him and sort of being cahoots together to do life and we're going to make it together kind of thing. And so after she left with all of this effort to get him to stop smoking, he would feel all the more desire and need to have a smoke. Sabotage. And if I went to her, and you know, I didn't, if I went to her and I said, you know, uh, Mrs. Jack, you're, uh, I know you love your son and you want him to stop smoking, but... Would you believe me if I told you, you are one of the primary pressure points that causes him to have this need for jack time, which is what smoking is about for him? She would absolutely deny that. There is no way she could own that. But it's true. She's a saboteur. Even though she loves him, she's a saboteur. And there are a million ways he sabotages his own life. Another quick example from a book that I love called Leadership and Self-Deception out of the Alban Institute. Um, uh, In this story, there is uh, a mom who's always sort of at odds with her son. I guess both her son and mom stories. What does that Freudian slip tell you about me? (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) So this mom and her son are always at odds with each other. And for some reason, he's always failing her. And she just is so upset with him all the time. One day, he asks to borrow her car so that he can go hang out with his friends. And the curfew is 11 p.m., right? He's about 17 years old. Thanks, Mom. Grabs the keys. Goes out. He's having a good time with his friends. And mom is home all night, sort of aware of the fact that her son has her car. And he's going to mess up again. She just knows this. It's 10 o'clock. I bet he's forgotten all about time. I bet he's not looking at his watch. He's doing God knows what. It's 1030. He's still not back. And at 1045, he walks in the door with a big smile on his face. He says, hey, mom. I didn't know you were going to still be up. Here are your keys. Thanks for letting me borrow your car. Happy as a clam, goes to the kitchen, grabs some water, brings it up to his bedroom, out for the night. And she is sitting there in the living room on this couch, fuming. But more than fuming, you know what she's feeling? Disappointment. Disappointment that he didn't break his curfew. Can you relate to that feeling? I can. Because there's some people around me, I need them to fail. Because if they don't fail, why am I unhappy? I need people to mess up around me so that I can blame them for my unhappiness. And if they're not failing me, then whose fault is it? Me? What? What? Of course I want to be happy. It's not my fault. It's you. And so I need you to fail. I'm a saboteur. Just like the mom needs a son to break curfew. Who will save me from this body of death? This sinful nature that is always within me. This evil that is right there alongside me. And once again... (laughs) The answer is Jesus, saved by Jesus. Verse 24 to 25. What a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave To the law of sin. Reinhold Niebuhr, I guess that's the way you say it. I called Karin, who's our German member here, uh, and asked her how to pronounce this. It's Reinhold Niebuhr. He's an American theologian and pastor uh, from the late 1800s to the uh, mid 1900s. And uh, he wrote this very famous prayer that some of you will recognize portions of, but I bet most of you have never read the whole thing. So I'm going to read it to you. God, give me the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things which should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. You've probably read some uh, tweaked uh, version of this prayer, but did you know this prayer was a prayer to Jesus? It wasn't just some graduation prayer? There's a great difference I'm beginning to learn, between youth and the aged. Youth, they flail. They're mostly unproductive. They exert a lot of energy and effort. And there is an edge of arrogance to youth. And the aged, I'm finding, are wise, they're more efficient, and they're more productive. In fact, the most productive decade... Uh, as far as making money is concerned, is in your 60s. This is what the statisticians tell us. The difference between youth and age is wisdom. And you know what wisdom is? Wisdom, just like Reinhold Niebuhr says, is the ability to discern the difference between things that can be changed and should be changed and the things That should not be changed. Not all change is good. Change is good, but not all change is good. And not all change is possible. And to know the difference is wisdom. Speaking of laws, the second law of thermodynamics says that things tend towards chaos. Things don't get better, things get worse. Can you change this law? Can you break the power of this law? Can you just get better? And the answer is no. And we're wise to know the difference. That we don't just get better. We actually get worse over time. The first law of thermodynamics. Energy can't be created or destroyed. You know what that means? I wrote a fascinating article on this this week. Then nothing, check this out, nothing can be cleansed without something else getting dirty. Energy can't be created or destroyed. The sum total of dirt in a system remains constant. It's just being moved, right? Down your pipes or onto a towel or onto a paper, whatever. It can't go away. It remains constant. Can you break this law? Can you make yourself clean without something else in your life getting dirty? Who are you going to put your dirt on? Your friends? Your children? Yeah, that's what we do. (laughs) That's what we do. We pass it on. Right? So I pray their prayer this morning that we all grow at each other's expense. If I'm going to grow as a pastor, and I have to, I'm only 39 for a couple more months i have to grow, but if I grow, it's going to be at your expense, right? That's the first law of thermodynamics. I can't help it. But there is one who can absorb sin into himself. Somebody who is outside of this closed system we call life. Breaks into our reality, that is our law. And fulfills this law, absorbs the breaking of the law and the slavery to the law of sin into himself and eradicates it forever. It's gone. And things begin to get better. So he breaks and fulfills the first law. He breaks and fulfills the second law and all other law. He came, he said, not to break the law, but to fulfill the law, to satisfy the law, to show you what the point of the law was in the first place. And he says, you trust me. Forget about law. Stop trying to relate to the law. You trust me. You leave the law to me. And it's not about you being good anymore. It's not about you being moral. It's not about you keeping anything. But trust me that I have fulfilled it. And then the good law can now be useful and helpful to you because you're not sucking it into your core anymore. It's not becoming your identity. You keep the law, great. It doesn't mean you're a better person because you're saved by Jesus. You broke the law, no problem. I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to absorb the consequences into myself. You don't have to be nailed to the cross. I'm nailed to the cross. Who will save us? Who? It's Jesus. Thanks be to God. Only Christ can do this. None of us can do it. And this live dynamic connection to Jesus, this slavery to the law of God rather than to the law of sin, is what we call salvation. In conclusion, There's a frontal force to the law, meaning if we disobey, there's sabotage. There's a rear guard of the law. If we obey, we sabotage. You will always lose to the law. Therefore, we need Christ. He is your identity and not the law. Sin is not just failing the law. But sin is a divinely unintended, illegitimate orientation to the law. It's our very relationship to the law that is what is sinful. The desire to take the law and find identity in the law. I want to leave you with two application points. First, what does having a live connection to this Jesus who is your only hope, look like for you during the week? How do you not get sucked into the life of law-keeping, law-breaking, and sabotage? How do you stay connected, trusting Him? How do you do that? What does it mean for you to look to Him as your Savior? And then the second application is communion. I want to give you specific instructions for communion today. I want to ask you to repent of this addiction to the law that is your sinful nature. I want you to confess to God that you have loved the law, that you have loved keeping it, you have loved breaking it, more than you have loved Jesus. That you experience a semblance of control and self-dignity when you have this relationship to the law. Repent of that. Repent of your badness. Repent of your goodness. Say, God, I have, I have this orientation to the law. That's sinful. I'm looking to the law as if it can save me. But only Jesus can do that. And so change... By definition, it's not just doing better as a person, but ultimately it's connecting to Jesus, right? It's it's him drawing himself to, you. he's rescuing, he's delivering you, pulling you out of the water, not just once, but holding on to you so you don't fall in again. What does that holding of Jesus look like for you? Right And so, in communion, I want to ask you to repent of that, and this was really interesting research that I did this week that I appreciated for our communion today is i 've been saying that intinction, which is a method of dipping the bread in the wine, is a fifth century method. I was actually off by three hundred years uh, it 's a, it's a uh, um, second century method. it was developed in sometime between two hundred and two hundred and fifty eight a d and it was developed. Uh, At the first, as a practical way to do communion, because they were these paedo-baptists. You know, what uh, paedo, people who baptize infants, right? And uh, they felt that they wanted these babies to take communion also, because they're baptized. How do you get babies to take communion? You you just dip it in the wine first, so it slides down easier. So this is how intinction was invented originally, in AD 200, And I thought this was interesting, because shouldn't we all be babes? Our dependence on Jesus? It was fascinating for me. So we're going to practice intinction, and today I want you to come to Jesus and say, I repent of trying to be an adult and thinking I can be responsible with the law on my own. I can't. I need you, Jesus. As a babe needs its mother, I need you. And confess, without you, I tend towards chaos and I die. Only you can help me. Only you can cleanse me. Okay? Um, So we are going to take communion today. Uh, Communion is a Christian's way of remembering this truth that we talked about. That he had to absorb this sin. Satisfy the first and second law of thermodynamics, along with all of other God's laws. And he absorbed it into himself. And it cost him his life. And we remember that he did that for us. Not just as an example, but as our hero. He did it so we don't have to do it. He's not saying, I did it, do it just like me. He's saying, I did it. Come, come to me. And we remember that together. If you're here and you're not, somebody who identifies as a Christian, this is a great way to do that, a time to do that. Say, Jesus, you are my only Savior. Nobody else can save me. I'm just a saboteur at my best. And all those who love me are saboteurs at their best. I need you. Come be my Savior. And then take communion. Let this be your first act as a brand new believer in Jesus. Okay? So we are going to practice an old second-century method called intinction. And uh, what that means is you're going to take a piece of the bread, dip it into the wine um, or its juice, and then take the elements together. A couple of rules. Uh, Dip. Do not double dip. And if you double dip and there's a crumb, don't go fishing. And then self-regulate. So take when you are ready, when you want to take the elements. You don't have to wait for anybody else. Okay. If the ushers can come forward at this time, as I say the words of institution. On the night in which Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took the bread and breaking it, he said, this is my body broken for you, take and eat. And then after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you, take and drink and as you do, remember me. After I pass on the elements, if I can ask the worship team to come forward first, and then the rest of you can follow as you're ready.